0: something uh, very gripping about a good conspiracy there's something really exciting about finding out something that nobody else knows everybody else has got the kind of official version of the events but but you've managed somehow to find out the truth that everybody else is trying to keep hidden well one of the most famous examples concerns these guys Uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, there they are in their NASA training facility before the moon landing in 1969. And the We Didn't Land on the Move campaign is still going strong. I was struck this week to look at opinion polls that would suggest up to 20% of Americans and 25% of Britons, clearly we're more conspiratorial than our American cousins, uh, refuse to believe That we landed on the moon in 1969, and I'm not getting into all of that. But here's another example. Uh, In Roswell, New Mexico, in 1946, I think it was, 1947, we had the crash landing um, that caused all sorts of ferrari, especially if you're conspiratorial by nature. And in 1994, the US government released its report in which it said, we did indeed have a top secret military spy balloon that was looking at nuclear facilities in other countries. Now, believe that, will you, Will? There we go. The uh, ufologists would have their own explanations. Uh, then you've got President John F. Kennedy. And the ringing question of how and why did he die? Was it just Harvey Lee Oswald on his own? Was there a second shooter on that grassy hill? And why did they kill him? And the conspiracy theories are As alive and well today in our digital age, you have been watching, as I have, in your news feeds, your Twitter feeds, your however you get your news feeds, reports of how President Putin has been manipulating his own version of events in order to try and justify what he is doing in Ukraine to his Russian people. Now, my day when I was studying history in like the previous millennium, uh, we call that propaganda. Now we call it fake news. But you see the power of a leader who is able to manipulate state media in order to sow and weave and manipulate a story that just is of their own imagination and meets their own needs. Conspiracy theories, fake news, they all abound today. But there's nothing new about any of them. And actually, conspiracy theories and fake news surrounded the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very first Easter. And if you're not alive to that, when you pick up on some of the questions that we're going to read from the Bible's record of what happened that very first Easter, you might be thrown off and think, well, probably the whole of the resurrections A conspiracy. It's all just been pumped out by fake news from these early Christian people. And what I want to show you this morning is how to see what is conspiracy and fake news. And what is true. And why it matters. And why the resurrection that we remember this morning is the turning point of human history. And I pray the moment that determines your eternal destiny. Now we're going to look, if you've got a Bible, the text will appear on the screen, but we're going to look at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. Tim's just read for us from Mark's, and we're going to read three little parts. We're going to read them in chunks, and then we're going to think about what we are learning in them. We're going to pick up at the end of Matthew 27. And if you've got a Bible, then please do turn to it, but if not, then follow it on the screen. We're picking up after... The women, if you look back at verse 60, 61, they've watched exactly where Jesus was buried. And then we pick up the story of what happens the next day. He was buried on Good Friday. The next day, the one after preparation day, to you and me, that's Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, that's what these people were calling Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worth Than the first, which for them was that any man would claim to be God himself. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, did you spot the fear of a conspiracy in those verses? Did you spot the fear of a conspiracy? Here you've got the Jewish leaders pleading with the Roman governor, Pilate. He was the one who was notionally in charge, even though it was a bit of a puppet role. But he's the one who's in charge. And here's the Jewish leaders coming to him and saying, we've got a genuine fear. Verse uh, 64. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. They're not worried about the fact that Jesus might come back from the dead. Dead people stay dead. That's not the worry. The worry is that Jesus' followers might steal the body and try and convince other people that he's come back from the dead. And it's really interesting how conspiracies work, isn't it? We see this in our day as well conspiracies bring other people who would normally be enemies in order to work together. So you've got the chief priests and the Pharisees. In the, in the Jewish council that was the most important body of the Jewish people, they were the opposing parties. It's like the Conservatives and the Labour Party or something much worse. Okay? They are not normally friends. The same is true of the Jews and the Romans. The Romans are this invading empire who've taken over Israel. They are not friends there's one thing that we will get the chief priests the pharisees the jews and the romans all working together and it's making sure jesus stays dead there's never been an alliance stronger that is pulling together these really unlikely partners to bring together this well it's a fear of a conspiracy and it's really interesting how this fear is brought back to mind because um, they are remembering what Jesus' disciples have forgotten Back in Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples at a bit of a turning point in his ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus had explained it all to them in advance. He told them, I am going to be killed by the religious leaders. And after I've been killed, three days later, I am going to come back to life. But the disciples' response, the very moment Jesus is arrested, is to fear and flee. (laughs) And ironically, the one group of people who are kind of anxious, for some reason they can't really explain that what Jesus said might actually happen, are the Jewish leaders who won't even refer to him by name. He's just the deceiver. So they head off to Pilate and explain this fear of a conspiracy to them. And Pilate agrees and says, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Good luck with that. How many of you like building sandcastles? In yeah, we're starting to get excited. I've never built one that looks like this. Anybody built one that looks like this? I thought that was quite impressive. That sets the bar. If anybody can do that this summer, please send me a picture and we will display it for you. That's in the middle of Valencia. Now, I can't build anything as creative as that. But with my little bucket and spade and my very enthusiastic little children, I will make something on the beach this year. And, and sometimes the challenge is to make a structure. It doesn't really matter whether it's pretty and ornate like that. A structure that is so solid... I can hit it or run into it or fall on it. And it's not going anywhere. It's, it's proper solid. Well, humanly speaking, the Jews couldn't have been safer in stopping this conspiracy theory that they were worried about from brewing. Because what have they got? They've got a sealed tomb. They've they've taken the the, the Roman seal, probably, and and they've secured it like you would have done an old-fashioned letter with wax and a seal to make sure that nobody could possibly break into this tomb without you knowing it because you break the seal. And they're guarding this tomb. Now, the Jews had a group of soldiers called the Temple Guard. They could have guarded it themselves, but they didn't. They went to the Roman ruler, Pilate, and got him to dispatch some Roman soldiers called a guard come back to them in just a minute so you've got like professionally trained soldiers guarding a tomb with a seal on it now you put yourself in the shoes of the guards okay you've seen everything because you're a professional soldier what's your assignment your mission it is to stand outside the tomb of a dead person and protect him from a group of grieving disciples and widows and women and that's it it's not gonna be a hard 24-hour shift is it Until the tide comes in and that big sandcastle gets absolutely washed away. And here's the really amazing thing. You've got all of this fear of a conspiracy going on in their hearts. God is going to use that fear to prove the resurrection. You think about what they were trying to do. They were trying to make it impossible for anyone to steal Jesus' body. What they're actually going to do is make it impossible for anyone to deny that the body is still in the tomb. That's how big God is. He can take all the plans of the people that most want him to stay dead and use them for good. And that's what Matthew records next. If you've got your Bible, we're going to pick up the reading in chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, that's this morning, as we remember the events of that first Easter, For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer who tells us about these guards And when we say guard, we're we're talking more about like a troop, not just one guard. Probably, it was a 16-strong security detail. And the way they were drilled, and we've all done enough Roman history when we were kids to remember how much they were drilled. The way they were drilled was they would mark out a six-foot square space. And there they were, four by four, 16 of them standing outside this empty tomb. They've seen everything. They are professional killers. They've seen people die. They've seen people die very painfully. They've seen people not really die and need to be killed more quickly. They've seen everything. They've never seen anything like this. They've never seen and experienced an earthquake. They have never seen an angel of the Lord. And I love the details in the Bible. It, the more you read of the Bible, the more you realize that angels, are created beings. They're not super powerful, as powerful as God. They're created beings. The angels who love the Lord have spent all the time since their creation before time longing to see how God is going to save men and women. Because we're the ones made in God's image. The Bible describes angels peering over like they're just desperate to see what's going on in this plan. So here you have the angel of the Lord who comes down from heaven and he rolls this stone away. What's the stone? Oh yeah, that was Pilate's plan to make sure that nobody ever could get in to rescue Jesus' body. (laughs) And he rolls the stone away and he sits on it. I love that. Job done. We're not told what the angel was thinking. But in my mind, I wonder whether he was thinking, (laughs) wow, that's how God was going to do it. And you've got all these soldiers literally terrified to the point where they can't even function they're they're looking like dead people and similarly scared of the women but the angel says to the women verse 5 do not be afraid don't be afraid not because all of this isn't genuinely scary to see an angelic being to see things move that all of that is scary but you don't be afraid because you trust in the one who's not dead he's risen And you know he's risen. Because if you've got a Bible, you look back in verse 61. And Mary and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb when Jesus was buried. They know exactly where they put the body. Dead bodies don't move. So if Jesus was dead, that's where he'd be. And he's not. So the angel tells them, your saviour is risen. Go tell the disciples. And off they go. And amazingly, they meet Jesus. And what's their response? Yes, it's worship, but it's physical worship. They grab hold of, they clasp Jesus' feet. Why his feet? Well, I think partly it's symbolic. Partly it would be because they suddenly realize who this man is. And they kneel and bow, recognizing that he is the living son of God. The one who's sandals they did not feel worthy to untie but I think also what Matthew is showing us is the physicality of this worship they grabbed hold of his ankles Jesus is not an hallucination he's not a figment of their grieving minds he is the real person whom three days ago they had been with and watched die and then be buried and now he is alive and they have got hold of him to worship him. Now, we're going to come back to what that means for them in a minute. First of all, come back to the soldiers and the Jewish leaders. How is Matthew going to tie off those loose ends? Because they've got a real problem. This is a massive problem for the guards. They're professional soldiers in the Roman Empire. If you have a specific assignment in the Roman Empire... There is a punishment that comes if you fail. And for something like this, it's probably going to be death. So they've got a big problem because they failed and everybody's about to find out. But so have the Jewish leaders. They've got a massive problem too because their one big fear was that we would lose the body and couldn't say that Jesus was dead and buried. And now, well, I'm not sure any of them would believe that Jesus was actually raised to life from the dead but they can't prove that his body is still in the tomb everybody's got a problem and so interestingly as you pick up the rest of the story we move from a fear of conspiracy that they thought the disciples would come up with an idea to the beginning of an actual conspiracy let's look at the last bit of the reading from verse 11 while the women were on their way to go tell the disciples So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now short of admitting that they were wrong about Jesus all along, this was the only play they had left. They had to start pushing out some, some propaganda, some fake news. They, they pay the soldiers a bribe. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly how they managed to get Judas and then they say to them, in verse 13, they fabricate this story. You are to say, his disciples came during the night, stole him away while we were asleep. And, and we'll, we'll promise, by the way, to run interference if you start getting into trouble with Pilate. Quite how much peace that's going to give the soldiers. You know, Pilate's the one who might actually command that they be killed. And then there's this Jewish leader saying, oh, no, no, they all just fell asleep. We'll, we'll see whether that works. But do you see how unbelievably far-fetched all of this sounds? You've got 16 professional soldiers whose job is to stay awake for one night. Somehow all fell asleep at exactly the same time, but somehow know that the disciples came and stole the body. The disciples who've all fled because it just, it's not credible, is it? None of this is credible. But that's the only option they've got left. Because if you refuse to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you've got to make up some other Explanation because the tomb is empty. How about you? I hope you're not persuaded by a conspiracy, but what do you actually believe about the empty tomb? What do you believe explains the fact that that tomb was empty? As Christians, we believe the first thing is that it proves that we can trust Jesus' word. You see, the Jewish leaders on Easter Saturday, they got one thing right. They remembered what Jesus had said before he was killed. And in fact, if you read Matthew's gospel, he says it on three different occasions. So we would know this wasn't just Jesus thinking this is how it might play out and he wasn't really sure. He repeated it three times so we would know. That he was to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I've spent much of the last two years realizing how little power and control I have. That's what the pandemic's proven to all of us, isn't it? We've lived the whole of our lives for the last two years writing everything in our calendar in pencil, expecting to rub it out because our test comes back with two lines instead of one. Now, you compare my, our powerlessness with Jesus' power. Jesus is not only in control of every moment of his life. He is in complete control of the moments in his death. He is the God over life and death and is able to tell his disciples, not only am I going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, but three days later, I will be raised back to life. We've spent a lot of times singing some brilliant songs during a holiday Bible club. One of them, and we could have sung many this morning, one of them has a brilliant line in which as the kids think about all the things that Jesus said and did, they shout out, only God can do that. That's what's going on here. This isn't human power. This is, I not only know the future, I have the power to be raised to life From the dead, the resurrection proves that we can trust what Jesus says. Now, if we can trust what Jesus says about that, we can trust what Jesus says about everything. Not only during his life as he himself spoke, but as his spirit has recorded the whole of the Bible to us. And what does it tell us? It tells us that every single one of us will die. And we all know that. It's really interesting. I had a, um, we, we promoted the flyer for the service on Facebook and, and sometimes you get some comments back from people and I had a, a comment from somebody back to say, uh, Jesus didn't die, nobody dies. Death is just what we use as a word to describe the fact that we continue. And I understand that there's lots of worldviews that would say that that is the case. But isn't it interesting that death is how we understand things legally, criminally, medically, sociologically. You you don't have to be a Christian to know everybody does die. And the Bible tells us why we die. We die because by nature and by choice, we are sinners. We are people who, if you're at Holiday Bible Club, say to God, shove off God, I'm in charge, and no to your rules. And the cost of that living or to use the Bible's language, the wages of sin, if you want to go that way, what it will cost you is death. In fact, the Bible writers tell us that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So we who are sinful will die And because we are sinful, we'll be judged. And because we will be judged by a perfect God who sees every single thing we think, say, and do, our judgment will be horrific and eternal. Now, how then do we make sense of what Jesus says? Because before he was crucified, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. How is it possible that sinful people like me and you, who know that because of our sin we will die and know that we'll face judgment, how is it possible that we can know life and life to the full? Well, that is because of the greatest swap. Now, everybody knows Uno. In our family, we have Uno Extreme, and you can work out for yourself, why we have an extreme version of Uno, if you know my family. And if you play Uno, you know that it's all about the regular cards, you know, red seven, green four, whatever. But the thing that really matters is all the special cards. So you might have a change direction card and suddenly the person next to you isn't going to be able to go. Or if you've run out of the right colors, you can change the color. You might be able to skip the go of the next person. But the card that makes all the difference and is a tricky card to know how to play is the swap hands card. Now, the reason this is tricky is you might be looking at your hand thinking, I've got this one hand and then a pile of rubbish, and I've got 84 cards that are just rubbish. But I don't know what's in your hand. And here's the thing about what happens when you play this card. Everything that's in my hand becomes yours, and everything that's in your hand becomes mine. Now, that is what happened at the cross. The perfect Son of God, who lived a life of complete obedience, took upon himself everything that is in the hand of every person who will believe in him. Everything. All our guilt, our shame. All the things that we don't ever want anybody ever to know. All the things that we would rather not remember ourselves. Jesus took all of that upon himself, taking our hand from us and bore the just judgment of a holy God. That's why in the middle of the day in the Middle East, where it is hot and the sun is there, it went pitch black for three hours. Because God was dealing with our Sin. Jesus was taking our hand. And here's the amazing thing about the resurrection. Not only does it prove that we can trust what Jesus said, because he said in advance exactly that it was going to happen, but it proves his sacrifice was enough. Because what's the wages of sin? Death. If it was unfinished and there were still wages to be paid, Jesus would still be in the tomb. But the tomb is empty which means it's all paid, every single bit of it. And now you get to think, well, if Jesus has taken my hand, I wonder what's in his. So many things you could say here. I want to give you three Fs to remember. Three Fs. We receive forgiveness from God because his son has taken the penalty for every sin. Every person who believes in him will commit. We know his forgiveness. It will never, ever be remembered ever again. And we, therefore, receiving what is Jesus's, become part of the family of God. You become a son or a daughter of God. The spirit of Jesus comes to live within you now as a deposit for what is going to happen because the final F is we will be with him forever. Because we've been forgiven and brought into his family, Jesus has told us he is coming back. Now you might think, oh, all religions say something about, you know, there's an end of the world or something. Let me tell you, how many religions have a saviour who said before he would die that he would die and raise again, and he did. Now if somebody has the power over death, They have the power to return. I don't know whether it's going to be this afternoon or in a thousand or more years. But I know he's coming back because he has said so. And the resurrection proves that I can trust what he says. And when he returns, every single man, woman, boy and girl who believes and trusts in him will be with him forever because we've been forgiven. We're part of his family And he will bring us, not to the eternity we deserve, but into an eternity with him. That's why Christians love Easter Sunday. You might not normally come to church. I don't know whether this feels completely weird to you. But hopefully, of all of the things that you are taking in right now, there is one sense of joy from the way that we're singing, the way that we're talking. It's because the resurrection is our guarantee, our proof, our receipt that our sin is paid for, that we are forgiven. Not because we deserve it, we don't. But by God's grace now, we're not his enemy, we're his sons or daughters. And we can look forward to being with him forever in a world that is not only free from suffering, it's also free from sin. Be able to enjoy his presence in a perfect world forever. Now, you know, one of the other many, many things that Jesus said before he died, was said in the presence of a grieving sister whose brother had just died. And before Jesus raised him from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Hey, imagine how precious those words became to Martha when Lazarus was raised from the dead but here's Jesus now having been raised from the dead that first Easter Sunday and now we see how it was possible for him to raise Lazarus in the first place because he's no ordinary man he's the son of God he's dealt with our sin he's proven it's finished by the resurrection and when Jesus first said those words to Martha he finished with a question do you believe this That's what I want to leave with you this morning. Do you believe this? Somehow everybody has to explain the empty tomb. Nobody could question the fact that the body wasn't there. And I hope you're not looking at the fake news and the conspiracy and thinking, well, that's clearly the way to explain it. But not believing the conspiracy isn't enough. You have to personally Trust the risen saviour. You have to turn from living a life where you've been ignoring him and doing the things he's told us not to do and not doing the things he's told us to do and not turning to earn it but turning to receive from him everything that he has won for us. That's why we have this great news to tell you of a God who doesn't say do, do, do He says, my son has done it. Now you believe in him. Find forgiveness. Be a part of my family. And know it's true forever. Now if you're here for the very first time, you might be thinking, well, that's quite a lot to take in. (laughs) I'm not sure I've got everything in my mind yet. That is a great place to be. And we would love for you to be able to pick up just a few things this morning and Take them away with you. So on the table as you go out, there's a pile of all the things I'm about to show you and you're welcome to take any of them. The first is a book called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. It's a really helpful book that just digs into this question a little bit more. What does it mean to know that the tomb is empty but to be able to explain it? It's written by a lawyer, so I kind of like it because that used to be my world, but he writes really clearly and I commend that to you. One of the most important things that all of us as Christians hold dear is the Bible. We've been reading from it because we believe it's the living Word of God. And if you don't have one, we would love for you to take one away. If our whole Bible, and there's some of these, are a bit big for you at the moment, that's fine. We've got Mark's Gospel, which is what Tim read from earlier please take one of those with you. That's got some questions and some information at the back as well, which will help you as you start to read it for the first time. And as you do that, if you start thinking, you know what, I'd really like to ask some questions. Spend some time with somebody who is a Christian and and is willing to hear me ask my questions about the Christian faith, about what I have believed to this point. We would love to do that. There are some of these cards at the back for an explore course. And we will run those every time we have people who would like to do so. We'll try and make the venue and the time work for you. So please do pick one of those up if you would like. Our great hope is that you would find this Easter to be the first Easter where you've not only thought about the empty tomb, but realized that the one who is risen from it is your Savior, who's dealt with your sin, who's brought you into the family of God and secured your eternal life.